This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of the trial of the Chicago 7. We want to underscore again that we're coming to Chicago peacefully, but whether we're given permits or not, we're coming. We're going to Chicago to protest the Vietnam War. There's no place to be right now but in it. We watched for a decade while these rebels without a job tell us how to prosecute a war. They're going to spend their 30s in a federal facility, real time. People say, you know, Abby, are you concerned about an overreaction from the cops? Holy shit. You all right? It was until I saw that. Are the people ready to make opening arguments? At the defense table. Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, Dave Dellinger, Rennie Davis, Lee Weiner, John Freund, Tom Hayden, and Bobby Seale. These defendants had a plan, and the plan was to incite a riot. I call this portion of the trial with friends like these. <laughs> my trial's begun without my lawyer. The court assumes you are being represented by the Black Panther sitting behind you. The riots were started by the Chicago Police Department. Sustained. Nobody objected. Jurors 6 and 11, they're with us. Juror number 6 and juror number 11, you're dismissed from this jury. Can you tell us why? Because this is my courtroom. We've dealt with jury tampering, wiretapping, a defendant that was literally gagged. Get your hands off me! You are the first to suggest that I have discriminated against a black man. Then let the record show that I'm the second. When we walked in here this morning, they were chanting that the whole world is watching. If we leave here without saying anything about why we came in the first place, it'll be heartbreaking. Last summer, why did you come to the convention? To end the war. We're giving them exactly what they want, a stage and an audience. Yeah, you really think there's going to be a big audience? Here I am! This is what revolution looks like, real revolution. We may have to hurt somebody's feelings. Is this prosecution politically motivated? I'm tired of hearing you. It would be impossible for me to care any less what you are tired of. Here I am! There will be more! We have to find some courage now. How much is it worth to you? What's your price? To call off the revolution? All right, everybody, you were just listening to the trailer of The Trial of the Chicago 7, and the story is as follows. The story of seven people on trial stemming from various charges surrounding the uprising at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago, Illinois. The film is starring Yaha Abdul-Mateen II, Sasha Baron Cohen, Daniel Flattery, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Michael Keaton, Frank Langella, John Carroll Lynch, Eddie Redmayne, Noah Robbins, Mark Rylance, Alex Sharp and Jeremy Strong. It is written and directed by Aaron Sorkin. Here to join me today for this podcast review, I have Josh Parham. Hello, hello. Nicole Ackman. Hi, everyone. Cody Derricks. Hello. Lauren LaMagna. Hey, everybody. And Ryan C. Showers. Hello, hello. Okay, everyone, we're talking about one of the big Oscar contenders of this year from Netflix. This movie was originally supposed to come out uh, via Paramount. Netflix purchased the movie in the middle of the pandemic and 
smart move on their part. They have one of the most politically relevant films of the year. It's actually quite shocking how relevant this movie is in many ways to a lot of the things that we have seen this year. So the timing could not be any better. The platform could not be any better. But how was the movie itself? Aaron Sorkin, hot off of his uh, directorial debut with Molly's Game back in 2017. This is only the second film that he's ever directed. He's an Oscar winner already for writing. So there's no question there that the writing is always going to have some sort of sizzle and pop to it as Aaron Sorkin screenplays do. But how does everything else click into place here? And with an ensemble cast this large, we're going to pass it off first to Nicole Ackman. Nicole, what did you think of The Trial of the Chicago 7? So I wasn't really sure what I was going to think of this because I tend to be very hit or miss with courtroom dramas. And I do think that some of the court scenes in this are a bit dry. But overall, the movie worked really well for me. Like you said, it's shockingly relevant to what's going on right now, particularly whenever you think about how long they've actually been working on trying to make this uh, movie happen. And I think the performances are really great. I do have some issues with some of the writing and direction in it. Um, Some of the, like, Sorkin being Sorkin. But overall, I think it's a really powerful movie. Okay. All right. Cody Derricks. So I went into this as both a pretty big fan of Aaron Sorkin screenplays and courtroom dramas. So I was uh, I was excited. You know, I was interested to see what this was. Plus, it's always fun to see the, you know, one of the top five big Oscar contenders for the year and finally check it off your list. Um, and I was pleased by the trial of the Chicago 7. It is definitely good. It is absolutely fine. Um, I didn't find it to be the kind of like stirring this is the moment we're capturing on film kind of movie I was hoping it might be and it seems to be positioning itself as um but yeah I mean it's a movie of like pretty incredible performances and a a decent script I think that might actually be one of my biggest problems with the movie is that for grading on a curve and again I'm a big fan of Sorkin this probably is my second least favorite of his screenplays besides Charlie Wilson's War um so I was a little surprised to be underwhelmed by that aspect of it. I wonder if maybe that's because there was just so much that had to be covered factually that there wasn't as much time for like the kind of character and dialogue beats that he's obviously in favor of. It kind of lacked that energy that he usually brings to screenplays. But yeah, overall, it was a, it was a good movie. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what everybody else thought about it. Okay. All right. Lauren LaMagna. I went into this um, movie... As a big fan of Aaron Sorkin, he's one of my favorite screenwriters, but a little blind on the actual event. I don't know that much about it. Um, I wasn't taught that much about it during um, my time in high school or university. So I was kind of excited to also learn about it. And I was kind of shocked at how much I did like it. I'm going to agree with Cody where I think this is um, the least Aaron Sorkin-like movie of Aaron Sorkin um his dialogue isn't it's no social network it's no Steve Jobs it definitely does not have that much energy in it which I think can contrive to maybe the story itself that needs to be telling or just the amount of characters there are because there there's a lot but again I was you know shocked at how much it parallels today especially right now and I think it's a shockingly really strong piece and I'm glad that I'm finally seeing you know one of the big front runners for this Oscar race and seeing what, you know, 2021, 2020 Oscars are going to look like. All right, Ryan. Okay. Well, you know, I really appreciate what Cody said about like, whenever there's one of the top five, like Oscar contenders, when they, when it comes, when one of them comes out, 
it's um it's exciting and i have to say um like i was going in expecting to really admire this film and while i do think um sorkin does capture the um indignant spirit um of the country right now with the film i i would be lying to say i was I would be lying if I didn't admit that I was disappointed by the trial of the Chicago seven. Um, I, you know, I, I love courtroom dramas too. You know, I studied courtroom dramas for seven seasons on the good wife um, and continue to do so. Like there, it's very much my jam. And I found um, the content here to be so dry. I felt like the film was so much longer than it actually was. Um, and I, 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 at times, I felt like Sorkin was aiming for to be aiming to and to be like a Spielberg type uh, to inspire on a Spielberg type of a level, and it came off as kind of campy and cheesy, and it just and so it, the the positive and uplifting moments were kind of ruined for me in that sense, um, and I yeah I I do uh, I I I do affirm what everyone else has said about the parallels to today's world. I actually um, have a different take on that um, than most of you probably do. So I look forward to discussing that further. Um, but I have to say this did leave me um, a bit underwhelmed. There isn't a lot of velocity to the plot in the middle of the film that I could really get behind. Um, there were definitely moments that, that um, did capture me, but I'm not very high on this film. All right. Josh Parham. So I find myself sort of echoing a lot of the same sentiments that have already been stated. Uh, I do think that this movie overall is good and is something that I could recommend to people. But I will also admit that a lot of it does feel, as as Ryan put it, you know, kind of underwhelming and disappointing. And I think that it works for the most part, but it works sort of in spite of all of these elements that I think should make it better. I think that Aaron Sorkin's screenplay is a little bit kind of lacking on what we usually like from him, and there is something about its construction and the dialogue that it does not really get me quite as engaged as I would other things that he's done, and, and that is very underwhelming with this movie. I think the performances are mostly good, but I would not argue that anybody is really like a particular standout or is giving an amazing performances. They have moments that are well done and they are give, all of them giving good performances, but I don't think anything here is like that revolutionary. And the, I would ex extend the same thing to Sorkin's directing. Like it's competent, it's fine, but I don't know if there's anything here that's really exciting. And in terms of this story itself, I think that it has moments where you are really invested in what's going on, and there are some very well-executed scenes, but I also feel like it's sort of playing to a particular crowd. I think there are a lot of times where it's very self-congratulatory, particularly towards the end, which we will talk about. Um, so yeah, overall, it's a good movie, but I don't think it's anywhere near as like miraculous or anything resembling something as like the best of the year. I agree that it's not a great movie by any means, but I really am entertained by this movie a lot. I've seen it three times now, 
And I usually come to Aaron Sorkin films for the zingers, for the one-liners of dialogue that are just so entertaining that his actors just relish in and chew the scenery up with. And his films also tend to have rapid-fire editing that I also really enjoy because it gives the film a sense of propelling like momentum behind it. And this movie also has that as well in a lot of scenes with um, cross-cutting especially. And I have to admit that Despite the old-fashioned storytelling that feels like it was ripped straight out of the 90s with the very unshowy direction that's just very, as Josh put it, very competent, I'm not a boomer by any means, but damn, if this movie didn't work on me, though, as if I was one, I don't know what it is necessarily, but I didn't need this to be deeper or more art housey or uh, honestly really all that nuanced i think right now what i was craving was a very blunt overly sentimental story and this movie does give that in all of its cheesiness at times but i i can't i can't deny that i ate it up and i think a lot of that has to maybe just do with the year in general not just politically socially but also to the other films that have come out this year that this movie is stacked against i think that it looks better by comparison well matt i just want to say i i agree with you like i love i'm a sucker for 90s nostalgia and even like the early 2000s nostalgia like i i could watch movies i could rewatch those movies all day long um but for something for some reason like there's something about aaron sorkin's direction that particularly turned me off or didn't work for me in this. I I think a lot of the um, a lot of the flaws that we're all kind of alluding to, other than the screenplay, can be traced back to a problem with his directing. And I don't like this was my hesitation in predicting this film for best picture um, all summer long was like I don't think that an Aaron Sorkin directed film can necessarily achieve uh, achieve something if his writing is being directed by somebody else. I think another issue I had with the direction, besides the kind of lack of polish, for lack of a better word, I and I can't even put to words why, so if somebody else can say why, maybe I sound very stupid, I did not believe this as a period piece. For some reason, it just did not have the full transformative look of, and it wasn't that it was inaccurate, just something about it really felt like actors playing dress up. And I really I do think that has to go with the general look of the movie, which I do lay at the feet of the director. It's very kind of just blah, for lack of a better word, which really just gives the illusion of like lack of transformation. Cody, I think I, I think I might know what that feels like maybe. Cause you, you were asking for us to clarify for you and uh, for yeah. actors playing dress up. I personally believe even though as a whole, I think this is one of the best ensemble casts of the year. I think there are certain parts individually that are miscast. Uh, which ones in particular are you pointing to? So, <laughs> okay. So I know we're going to have difference of opinion on this um, because it's such a large cast that everyone's taste will vary here. But for me personally, I have to admit, like Sasha Baron Cohen for me did not feel right for Abby Hoffman. I think that that was like the biggest one. And yeah. yeah. I would sort of agree with you on that, Matt. Not only because in real life, apparently, like he's like, like a decade older than what that character was supposed to be, but he does feel. I'm just gonna say that that character to me felt the most like Aaron Sorkin putting himself into a movie because he's the only one given the real kind of snappy dialogue. He's obviously sort of like the one you're supposed to pay the most attention to, and it felt like he was 
and one way intentionally being crafted to be a standout, and I understand that's the construction of that character in the story, but I also feel like the way that he is written and the way that Sasha Baron Cohen plays him just never felt quite completely authentic to me within this movie, and it usually took me out whenever he was like the only person given the patented Sorkin quips, and I just don't know if that characterization really worked on me quite as well as it should have. Also, the accent bothered me. See, I kind of actually liked the accent, I will say. I, I was specific enough that I couldn't really find a problem with it. I don't personally really know what Abby often sounds like in real life, but that type of, you know interpretation to impression ratio never really bothered me personally so that's just me also i was underwhelmed by jeremy strong i probably from expectation and also just where his career is at right now i expected more from that role instead of him just kind of coming off as comic relief in most of his scenes and that's really what he was so i was a little underwhelmed by that aspect of it in that sense i also thought maybe he was miscast because I mean, also granted, too, if this movie had come out maybe even just a little bit earlier before now Jeremy Strong is becoming like such a big star in our minds, it wouldn't be such a big deal to me because he has been a bit of a character actor lately on the scene. But now I just expect so much more out of that. And the one role, surprisingly, and this was like a huge surprise for me, was actually Eddie Redmayne who I typically don't like. And this is like the most I've liked him since The Fury of Everything. Uh... I'm not going to say that I liked Eddie Redmayne in this movie because I actually don't think he's giving a great performance. But what I will say is that casting Eddie Redmayne as like maybe one of the least likable members of this group is actually kind of perfect. <laughs> I, I will kind of cop to that, that having him play somebody that you aren't really charmed by and is sort of going against the unified spirit of the group and you kind of want to antagonize throughout most of the movie actually felt rather fitting for him but i still wasn't enamored by the choices he was making as a performer i mean you talk about accent work i think he delivers the worst job in the movie in that department yeah i agree with you that his accent is wobbly at times completely but and maybe this is a credit to the writing um and also despite the accent the performance I, I, I was pretty moved not just by um, what he was conveying through his like, you know, that character, Tom Hayden's like ideas and philosophy on how to actually protest. But also I was caught up in the character and how he was trying to be the good the good boy of the group and be respectful towards the establishment where everybody else was saying, no, fuck the system. And there was a bit of a contrast in that. And I thought that that provided some really good conflict between him and Abby Hoffman. I think that this is also like the least Eddie Redmayne that we've seen Eddie Redmayne in a while. Yeah. And I think that that goes a long ways. I He's actually one of my like three standouts of the whole cast. And I do also think that's partially because one of my issues with the film is that like we don't get much character for most of these people. And I would say yeah. like the issue with Jerry Rubin is nothing to do with Jeremy Strong's performance. And it's everything to do with how that character is written. Whereas right. I think we get a bit more for Tom Hayden. We get some more like actual emotional beats, particularly in his friendship with Rennie Davis. Um, and so I think that that definitely helps Eddie Redmayne. But I actually was shocked by how much I liked him in this performance. I think it's 
very unlike what we've gotten used to seeing from him. He was playing an actual human being. Well, he's not just like, you know, I was, I was talking to Dan Bear and he was like, he's not just a collection of ticks. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true. Like, he just seems like a, like a normal guy. Um, and I think that that is casting that maybe like worked out better than uh, we could have expected it to. But on the other hand, I mean, yes, he did have, I think, the most out of the entire cast. But for some reason, no matter what accent that boy does, Eddie Redmayne just looks like a boy that just got out of drama school in England trying to do something. Like, I can't see America from him. I just can't. And, like, they'll put him in, like, these big coats and scarves. And, like, you're still making him look European, Aaron. Like, it's not helping. And then, like, he'll act against someone like Mark Rylance, for example, where, like, I fully believe that he made that full transition. And I just can't, for some reason, get the okay American revolutionary out of Eddie for some reason. Well, I actually agree with everything Nicole said. Um, I, he was one of my favorites of the cast. Um, and to be honest, it was pretty hard to discern um, MVPs from the cast. Um, and that kind of echoes what Josh was saying earlier. Like, I, I don't know. I, I don't, like, I struggled to look at my Oscar predictions um, this morning and think which of the members of the cast would be elevated um, in the Best Supporting Actor race or Best Actor in the case of Eddie Redmayne. Um, I do think um, Redmayne, by the end of the film, does capture something different than he has in most anything I've seen from him before. I think that because I was I too Ryan had like this crisis after watching the movie of oh my god like what does the best supporting actor like race look like now and I haven't even mentioned like my favorite performances of the movie and that is Mark Rylance uh, as William Cussler Cus uh, uh, Frank Langella as uh, Julius Hoffman Judge Julius Hoffman um, and also Yaha Abdul-Mateen as Bobby Seale like th those three for me were the standouts. Those are my standouts other than I would add Redmayne into there. And like, I also know that I'm partially just colored by like, is Redmayne that good? Or am I that surprised that Redmayne gave that performance? So. I, I, I was, I was definitely in the latter of like surprised because I think my expectations for him are just so low at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely agree with, uh, yeah, Abdul Mateen. I think he is actually giving my favorite performance in the film. And that is in spite of, a lot of issues I have with how that character is written and presented in this movie. I feel like that character is a source of a lot of my frustrations with you, you know, Matt, you were talking about the lack of nuance with this film. And I think how they deal with that character and the entire like black uh, Panther subplot that sort of surrounds him, I found incredibly frustrating because it felt like it was an element introduced in this story without any kind of proper context and was just there almost because it just needed to be because history demanded it would be, but it felt like Sorkin had no real interest in exploring it. But I'm, I will say that I liked his performance a lot. I thought that he sold that character very well. I just was disappointed that it was part of a storyline that didn't really feel like it had that much interest in being explored and then as soon as it was over with it was like dropped completely and we moved on from from that to other parts of the story yeah that's the one thing that i don't like either is that he is such a presence in the first and second act of this film and in the third act completely gone i mean i get it that's how like history 
goes, I suppose. Although, I was reading that the mistrial was kind of a shortcut that Sorkin took in the screenplay, that it didn't happen this quickly, and that he was indeed uh, tried along with the rest of them. So, I... I, 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 I wondered like a lot throughout this movie, even though it is ferociously edited at times, I kept wondering like what this movie could have done potentially with an additional 20 minutes for some more character development, giving us more time specifically maybe to conclude uh, the Bobby Seal storyline, even though uh, I, I get it. He gets his mistrial and that's like a triumphant moment and such, but it's like we don't really get, I, I feel like, clear resolution. No. I was actually reading up on the trial after the movie. You know, you do that fun like Wikipedia thing after yeah. the actual movie. And it, it, this doesn't make the movie better or worse, but it is interesting that there's so much in uh, like intriguing stuff that happened that Aaron Sorkin completely cut. Um, I think most notably besides the lack of nuance with the um, Black Panther elements and the Bobby Seale uh, gagged and bound, which actually happened for much longer in real life than just one, you know, one moment in the courtroom. Uh, there's a whole uh, litany of witnesses and like radical props that the Mark Rylance character actually brought into the courtroom. He like brought a North Vietnam flag in at one point. So the character actually seemed or the, the person in real life actually was seem to be at least in the eyes of the court fairly more radical than he's painted in the movie and again that doesn't make it better or worse it's just kind of uh colors i think what sorgan's trying to do with this movie in an interesting way i feel like they tried with one scene of him smoking weed with all of them to show that i i like i feel like that's the only scene where you get this sense that uh william Custler is like one of the boys you know what i mean yeah, I also think it's kind of weird how they, in the movie, Richard Schultz, the Joseph Gordon-Levitt character, is portrayed as, like, almost sympathetic. Like, there's oh, scenes, yeah. and, like, the scene with his two kids. And, like, I was reading up a little bit on him, and um, I, I really don't know why you would make that choice to make that character sympathetic when that person really wasn't. Uh, it just feels a little bit weird to me to do that because boomers have to believe that there are good people on the wrong side of issues yeah the movie in general does try to have its cake and eat it too in a lot of circumstances yeah. um part of that and i actually think this is one of the movie's strengths but it pretty is pretty clear what they're doing with it um the friction between the different factions of the like anti-war movement but they still have different factions in terms of how radical they are that really echoes a lot of you know uh left-wing politics now and it's, you know, true to form, but it is pretty clear that Sorkin is trying to just do a message of we all need to come together, which is, you know, noble, but it's pretty obvious. Yeah, it's an cool. obvious metaphor that he was going for. And yeah, you can see the parallel. I think <laughs> the other thing that I sort of noticed with even those arguments today is like, yes, it seems very relevant, but it's also like two very white factions arguing with each other about like equality within the United States and completely ignoring uh, a whole other section that kind of deserves to be in on that conversation. And I think that that is also systemic of kind of boomer ideology that this movie inhabits. And like you said, Cody, it's not that it necessarily dents the movie a lot if that's what you're looking for, but I do think that this movie lacks so much nuance in the story that it wants to tell that it ends up coming across like it's fine but i if you're looking for anything deeper or more complex this movie not only doesn't have it but i don't think is even interested in providing it did anybody else like roll their eyes at a particular line of dialogue uh 
because the movie was maybe trying too too hard to draw those parallels like as an example when um Michael Keaton, who, by the way, kills it in just two scenes of this movie, in my opinion. I do agree with that. Yeah. Uh, when he tells Julius Hoffman the, the president is not a client of the attorney general, I was like, oh, OK, well, <laughs> it's like you don't have to get more on the nose than that. <laughs> At least that were those were scenes, though, that actually kind of included some good quippy sort and dialogue I, that was sort of missing throughout the rest of the movie. So it was on the nose, but at least it had sort of the things we when were keaton tells him now arrest me or shut the fuck up i was like yes <laughs> and that's something too i want to just bring up this movie i i mean you guys can tell me if this happened to you or not but like this movie really got reactions out of me i mean like audible like you know affirmative like you know chance of like yes get him or oh fuck this guy you know like i was really really into this movie while watching it and i think that if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic and it was playing like in a theater i think a crowd would have gone nuts for this movie i, I was... definitely was reacting uh vocally though not always probably in the way that they wanted like at that line where um <laughs> This is the Academy Awards of protest. I said no out loud. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, absolutely not. <laughs> so sometimes I was just reacting to bad dialogue, which is probably not what they wanted. But but I, I, I do understand what you mean, Matt, that like it is a movie that I think uh, there are moments where you do have strong reactions. For better I was. I found myself pretty stirred by the moment where they storm the hill in Grant Park, um, if only because that kind of just, you know, brought back flashbacks to protests of this past summer. Um, but I mean, like the movie knows that and is doing that, not necessarily in terms of these specific protests, but it knows what it's like evoking in terms of uh, tribulations of the past. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. I will say that there was one moment towards the end that I think it gave me like the one of the biggest eye rolls that I had, which is uh, when Abby Hoffman is on the stand and somebody asks him essentially like, what, like, do you hate America? And his response is like, we have, we have good institutions with terrible people. And that's a line that I get what they're, they're going for. But again, to, to have this very radical character boil down his philosophy of, oh, we have like 
like really, really strong institutions in the United States is just being controlled by terrible people. Like one, it's also very on the nose of what we're dealing with today. And also misses the entire argument about the institution itself not being great and and missing the the flaws within the system that it's and putting that on the people that are in charge, I think underlines a theme that the movie's working with that I just found very reductive. And even for a movie that I get is not trying to be that complex, I still found that to be another moment that it looked at a situation where it could prodded some nuance and decided to just bypass it completely for very easy and very basic understandings of the world and the story that it was trying to tell. But that's what annoys me about it is that, you know, for like that scene in particular is that when he says that line and like, just it's like four words, it's not a lot in a typical, you know, Aaron Sorkin movie, that's where like this big hefty juicy monologue will come out where you literally as a viewer aren't speaking you're glued in and you're paying attention and you're trying to unravel what this character is saying that's kind of the joy of an Aaron Sorkin piece is to have these big juicy pieces of dialogue that means a lot and it has all these different interpretations and it's not on the nose and what's annoying about this piece maybe just because Aaron Sorkin's really attached to it or because it's based on real life I don't know is that it is just so direct and so watered down that it seems like it's just plain to us. We're not working hard at it anymore, which, you know, I don't like a dumbed down Aaron Sorkin piece. So seeing that and just saying like, okay, you're not letting us play with you, Sorkin. You're just giving us information. And that's not what we're known, what he's known to do. The one thing about that line, though, that Abby Hoffman says is that it's given an actual character in this movie in the form of uh, Judge Julius Hoffman where the courtroom system is designed to be fair, impartial, and try to give everyone a a fair trial. But when you have someone in that position of power calling the shots and already making up their minds that the defendants are already guilty, I think that does allude to like what Abby is saying at the very, very end of the film. And my God, have I not hated a character more than Judge Julius Hoffman this year in 2020. I despise this character so, so much and wanted to just punch him in the face multiple times. And I think that's a credit to Frank Langella's performance that he could get me so worked up about this character, even at times where I found it to be almost cartoonish and unbelievable that it would be like like this. It would be so overt and I, I really think that like this judge in particular is one that it, it, it's effective in how it does work up your emotions. But at the same time, I can uh, fully buy if people want to say that it doesn't feel believable to me and it just feels like it's cheesy and really working too hard to win over uh, viewers that don't want to work hard for the information, as Lauren said. See, I actually do feel like, like yes, that character of the judge that that Franklin Jail plays, he is meant to be like sort of cartoonishly antagonistic. But at the same time, I, I do give a lot of credit to uh, to Langella's performance, and even to a certain extent the writing. That I feel like he is always internally justified in his decisions. And even though you hate him so much, it doesn't feel like he arrives at these uh, opinions that he's giving out of thin air and like just to make you hate him. There is an internal dialogue and a logic, logical reasoning that that character is working with that actually does at least 
make it seem believable that he would act like that. And I do think that's a really big credit, at least to the construction of that character and the way that Langella plays him, that even though his actions seem very hyperbolic, they at the same time feel authentic. And that's very difficult to pull off. And a lot of credit, uh, especially given to Langella for having um, the real talent to pull that off. I also think for as over-exaggerated as it does seem at times, like, in doing a little bit of research, um, it's not. Like, that. that's pretty genuinely what that judge was like. Um, and it seems, like, almost unbelievable, but I feel like that's kind of the point. You know, it seems like he is so obviously in the wrong, and yet he is getting away with it, and he's being so, you know, blatantly terrible about things. Um, but, like, a lot of that is true and like you know the stat that they show at the end or whatever about like an overwhelming majority of uh chicago lawyers later polling that like he was you know not a fit judge um is true and i think that like that kind of does help build this narrative so like even if it does feel a little bit like over the top at least it is grounded in reality and like in real life (laughs) Yeah, I, I got to admit, like, there were so many moments in this movie, especially, like, his back and forth with uh, Rylance over representation for uh, Bobby Seale and how his uh, lawyer, Charles R. Gary, like, was not um, there at the trial. And, like, that scene where, uh, you know, he tells him, like, you know, you have lawyers to speak for you. And then Mark Rylance just, like, you know, you know, Mark Rylance, I mean, if you've seen him, like, in any movies, he's this calm fantastic great british actor and then he just roars no he doesn't and then there's like this silence that comes over the movie and it's like goddamn like these are just aaron sorkin moments that we live for especially in a courtroom uh after seeing other movies like a few good men that he's written before where it's like we want more memorable moments such as this and you know we were talking before about like how the direction at times uh is probably like maybe even weaker than the writing. I actually thought his direction was pretty solid throughout, but the one missed opportunity, and I mean like the most glaringly missed opportunity, is you have this scene with Langella and Rylance where Rylance fires back at him and then there's silence. And, you know, you kind of let that moment wash over you as an audience member. At the end of the movie, when Abby Hoffman's on the stand and he gets asked a question by Richard Schultz, do you have contempt for your government? And then he replies, I've never been on trial for my thoughts before. And the movie then fades to black. I think that that is the worst directorial choice of the entire movie. Uh And all they had to do, all they had to do to fix it was create that moment of silence the same way that they did previously in that scene with Rylance and Langella by having the camera cut from Abby saying that line to Richard Schultz's reaction Back to Abby, and then you fade out. You have a moment of silence before you fade. You don't fade right after the freaking line. It is frustrating to me. No, I groaned not. out loud. I literally groaned. <laughs> like I, it, it, I, I was so confused by the by what he did with the fade out. Like I, I, and I, I was then more frustrated with her, with the incompetency in his directing. 
I think something about the directing too that is surprisingly frustrating, and this is a little bit more editing, but you know, it's all of a piece with the vision of the film. And Matt, you mentioned the like, you know, exciting frenetic editing that usually comes with a uh, Aaron Sorkin scripted film, and that's definitely here. You definitely find that in scenes where characters are reiterating what happened, and you're getting multiple vantage points, and that's really exciting. But almost as often there were moments of like really sorry for lack of a better word, cheesy slow motion and contemplative moments in the editing and yeah, fade outs like you just mentioned. So the directing in that sense, I I have to say is really uneven. I wasn't a fan of the slow motion club hitting with the CGI blood, if that's what you meant. Yeah. I I mean, there's, there's a few moments of it and it, it, that generally bothers me in movies when it's used without uh, a ton of forethought because it's going to, if you're not careful, come across immediately as comedic. And while it didn't necessarily make me laugh, obviously it did make me kind of roll my eyes a little bit. He also did some of that in Molly's game too. And I think it's just maybe a part of his preference as a director when he, you know, sees how a film is being cut in the editing booth. He probably just reverts back to these um, 90s style tricks that people used to use very frequently in movies of that time in editing well he's an indulgent writer and i like him but he is indulgent you know he's like clearly in love with his own words and i don't fault him a lot of those words are very worth loving but the indulgent equivalent of screenwriting for directing and editing i think is like slow motion because it's like (laughs) look at what i'm capturing don't you feel this (laughs) i will say though that for as much as the direction didn't really impress me that much, the, probably the moment where I felt its strongest was in the like um, faux cross examination scene between Rylance and Eddie Redmayne when they're listening to the tape, um, where he's saying like the, the blood will flow through the street and all that. Like I really like the construction of that scene, and that's where me you too. get a lot of like rapid fire cross cutting, and it feels like the framing is a little bit stronger. Like I, I think of all the scenes, that was the one that I enjoyed the most purely from like a construction standpoint, from a filmmaking standpoint. And I really think that's probably my favorite moment just of like pure adrenaline filmmaking uh, in the entire movie. I agree. I Josh. Agree. And I, agree. Um, I, I would, I think that moment, like that sequence and the opening sequence are beautifully edited like uh, i i i watched the first 10 minutes and i thought oh my gosh this is gonna be this is gonna be great um i i really think that the editing is strong in those two um instances um and i actually think the score works in the opening sequence um i'm not sure if it works in the latter sequence that you were just discussing josh um but i think the score is also kind of a detriment to sorkin's overall effectiveness it's what really seals the deal and making some of these moments overly campy. I feel like the score didn't know what it wanted to be at times. Yeah, I'm going to be honest. I did not like the score. If you go to like the opening logos, it's got like kind of this somber tone. And then all of a sudden we got like this guitar coming in and it sounds like it's lively. And then it wants to be uplifting. And it just seemed very like all over the place. It didn't feel unified to me. It's and terrible. it's so bad in the ending. It's yep. so, I think wow. the score is part of what makes the ending feel so cheesy. But again, you know, that chalks up to that's, the direct. But that's your, that's your 90s feel good ending right there. <laughs> but here's yeah, the and it's excusable in a film from the actual 90s. But, and I don't mind, like, I love a good 90s movie. And I don't mind that in a lot of the film. But if you're gonna have a 90s movie feel, at least have a good 90s movie feel to it. Um, and that ending, I think, is just 
there, there would have been a really easy way to fix it. Uh, but it honestly, it like kind of ruined the momentum that the film had going for it for me. See, I feel like it's so Steven Spielberg like yeah. in so many ways. No, you know, actually, it reminds. So I was trying to figure out what I didn't like about the movie, like the direction, the um, the on the nose um, uh, points about our current political and um, social culture, um, and it kind of dawned on me like this is like what if the post had gone wrong like this is what the post would have been like um i feel like you know it it aims to you know really nail something in the current moment and um like the post tried to do and the post i feel like was more successful because the score was used better and the 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 cheesy quote moments worked and the post had a good rhythm to it it had good it had a good editing style I don't think that this film overall has a great editing style besides the two sequences I just discussed. But I think like he, I feel like Sorkin directs this as like a bad Spielberg movie, to be honest, like a Spielberg ripoff. Yeah, I, I can definitely sympathize with that. The thing about the ending to me is like, yes, it when the music swells and you get this very uplifting moment towards the end and like... I, I'm, it's not usually for me, but like I get it. I understand what the movie's going for, and it's for a particular audience that doesn't really win me over. But it's like, okay, I get it. The point in which the ending uh, of the ending that actually like really got to me though was when the room started like raising their fists in the air, and it's like for a movie that takes place during this time that obviously is supposed to be black power signs and to have that happen in a room full of white people that to me was that was when i was like okay kind of fuck this ending <laughs> to, to be which honest. i don't know cody did you read anything about like did they actually do that i could not find information on it um i was looking that doesn't mean it didn't happen but it was not <laughs> it wasn't in the wikipedia article so <laughs> it feels like it would have been noted if it had happened <laughs> Do you know if the reading of the 4,000 names, if that actually did happen? That I also don't know. <sighs> Let me take a look. Let me think. Oh, that's such I a theatrical also... ending, though. Like, it, that's like this screenplay or this film screams theatrical to me. And I know that Sorkin was a playwright. But there are just moments where this seems like a play-to-film adaptation that made zero changes to the original source material. And, like, one of those, like, big finale uplifting moments and then cut to black is literally, like, a staple there. One thing I do appreciate, at least, though, in the screenplay is I do appreciate that the reading of the names at the end and also, too, the bringing of um, Michael Keaton's uh, character, uh, General Attorney... um, Oh, God, I can't remember his name now. But bringing Keaton's character and also uh, the reading of the names are elements within the screenplay that actually get talked about in the first act. But we're all trying to kind of, you know, get caught up to speed on who everybody is, what the story is, that it kind of slides under the radar. So I appreciate that these are things that are mentioned and then they're kind of brought back later, at least, uh, so that it doesn't seem like they just come out of nowhere. I really, when the ending lost me is the moment where it, it freezes on the image of the courtroom and then like plays and y- like y'all know me I love some ending titles like give me some title cards to tell me what happened after a yeah film. I was so happy to see them <laughs> but doing it over like the frozen image of the courtroom felt almost laughable to me um I don't know there was something about it that just seemed so cheesy and dated 
that I like it because you know I liked the moment with the reading and the names and everything and like that had built nicely for me and then it did that and I was like oh okay right it's this movie I literally said ew <laughs> I would have rather had them go to some normal title cards show me like real pictures of these people as they're talking about them yeah. because I wanted to see like how well did they recreate these people's looks um so I was like googling afterwards and I would have preferred that to the weird freeze over the courtroom a lot I also could have done without the uh the whole world is watching audio clip right before the credits too yep all right so some clarification the reading of the names didn't actually happen um <sighs> instead there was something similar i'm reading this in an article from slate.com so check it out um the defendants tried to at another point in the trial read the names of the dead um but it looks like it was actually david dellinger the john carroll lynch character who was reading the names um so i guess it was kind of a you know a conflagration of uh actual true events that sort of happened which, by the way, I really like his uh, one scene where he ha- is just so fed up and he tries to unleash that frustration and then it gets the better of him and he strikes the uh, the, the deputy and he's, he's like so surprised that he did that. And he like he even says sorry to him. I, I really, really like that moment for John Carroll Lynch, who's a member of the cast that no one's really talking about. <laughs> exactly. He was one of my favorites, too. I mean, he's not, you know, going to make it on my ballot and he's not going to make it on in any award shows, but he's one of those sturdy character actors who's just been good for 40 years almost at this point. And I was, it was the perfect kind of role for him. And he was pretty, he was pretty great. He'll always be the Zodiac killer. <laughs> or is he? <laughs> Side note, I had no idea in real life that Tom Hayden was married to Jane Fonda. Yeah. Oh my God. That's yeah. right. For almost 20 years. And then also too, I love that, uh, you know, at the end of the movie, when, you know, Judge Julius Hoffman is telling Tom Hayden that I really do believe, and he honestly means this when he says it, that he will be a productive part of the system one day. I love that Tom Hayden actually, like, really did get, like, elected into politics after that later. It just feels like a good fuck you over the title cards at the end of the movie that I really appreciated, where some of the other title cards for everybody just seemed like unfulfilling downers and i know that that's like what really happened to most of them but like jerry rubin struck by a car and killed abby hoffman killed himself i'm like oh oh and then it's like tom hayden elected to legislature for six six terms or whatever and i was like oh well that's nice (laughs) yeah the inclusion of the abby hoffman suicide mention kind of struck me as especially icky given the fact that a lot of these defendants are dead in real life and they didn't show that for all of them so to have it be like an abby hoffman killed himself really kind of reads as this kind of subtle conclusion of this troubled arc that this you know guy who's like clearly a clown but is passionate they're like painting him like that in the movie and it kind of just read as a little bit like exploitive to a degree especially since that's not really ever explored within the text of the film at right. all like yes obviously he is sort of tortured about current events and he's using comedy as a way to mask that but it's more of like striking back at the world and nothing internally so when you get that that title card at the end it does sort of seem like oh okay i mean yes it obviously actually happened but there was nothing in the movie to really to really suggest that or to hint at this deeper inner turmoil and it felt yeah like you were cheated out of a stronger character because of that. And I also felt like his stand-up didn't have any conclusion. Like, it was a narrative framing device to cross-cut 
uh, back to a couple of times, but there was no there was no ending for it and thus it seemed like there was no purpose or meaning for it other than to have more cross-cutting to create a sense of momentum for the movie i think that was yeah its that was main the purpose. literal meaning yeah all right so ryan final thoughts on the trial of chicago 7 anything that we didn't mention that you want to bring up um i i wouldn't affirm what was said earlier about michael keaton um that sequence probably was my favorite of the film um I, I wish I could like this movie more. Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad to know that it, people aren't all across, like across the board on this film consistent as it's very, very good. Um, you know, I do think that maybe in the future, this could go down in history as like a, um, a future classic um, when it comes to the courtroom drama um, genre. But for now, I am I still remain I'm mixed on it. OK, Cody. Uh, one thing we didn't really mention that I did like about the movie um, until I had a kind of unfortunate payoff. I liked that the movie, through the uh, defendants saying as much, really did keep the focus on the fact that this is a protest of a war. And they were really aware of the actual deaths happening to, you know, innocent men being churned through the war machine. Um, there's an early scene in the movie where the characters are, you know, in their kind of like uh, office <laughs> for lack of a better word. And they're always, you know, bickering and fighting in there and it's to be expected. And there's a one moment of solace where they kind of just stand and watch the names of the that day's dead scroll on the TV and then get right back into, you know, bickering and fighting. And I thought that was the more subtle version that I kind of respected more than what they did in the film's conclusion. But I do like that. That was a focus and something the film never forgot because it could have easily just been a, you know, just a courtroom fight about these specific men being tried for a riot. All right. Lauren. I think this is a good film. I would recommend it. I think Aaron Sorkin needs to figure out his directorial identity on how he wants to tell his specific stories. Cause I think this is a step up from Molly's game, but I wasn't a huge fan of Molly's game. So it's still not the best there, but he needs to keep working. And, you know, we can't have an Oscar race without some crazy wigs in there. So I guess we could check that off the ballot. We also can't have an Oscar race without a Best Picture frontrunner that is dividing people. And, (laughs) you know, like there's always going to be some movie that's in the Oscar conversation that people are just like, oh, I guess. And then that's also in the conversation, too. (laughs) Right. This isn't like a toxic contender, though. You know, it's one that I think is going to get a higher on tomato score because everybody's going to be like, yeah, it's fine. And then it's just going to kind of stumble its way into (laughs) nine nominations. No, yeah, it's a good fuck the government movie and it's all about you know like who does the law favor does it favor the people or does it favor the wealthy elite who wrote it but i do think sorkin needs to figure out how he wants to tell stories because you know the guy's a good writer we all know that but he needs to figure out how he wants to actually show these stories instead of just writing them if he wants to continue to be a director in film i think he has established it with molly's game in this i just think we're all disappointed by it Mm. i I have to say i did like molly's game more than this me too. I, I like Molly's game a bit more than this too, but I do recognize that a lot of the directorial choices are ones that are 90s, early 2000s in style and are not so much a 2020 like style that we see in other movies today. He, he's definitely a throwback director in the way that someone like a... Uh, even someone like a Clint Eastwood, you know, is considered by some. 
I think the difference between Molly's game and this in terms of directing is that Molly's game is such a small scale story. Yeah. That to tackle a highly ambitious, many characters, historical, political piece like this, which he's written before. Um, but to tackle that as a director and writer, I feel like, unfortunately, the writing and the screenplay kind of got a little bit left to the side, which if that's what Sorkin's can do with his movies that he's directing i don't want him to keep directing because i <laughs> i like his screenplays a lot but when they're sacrificed in the name of direction i that is fairly mediocre to be honest i'm not not really a fan of that okay nicole i feel like i've sounded very negative on this review and i do want to clarify i actually like this movie quite a good amount um i think the performances really do elevate it and while there's nothing like groundbreaking performance wise i think overall it's a very strong cast um i actually do kind of appreciate the fact that it feels like a film from the 90s because you know like i've said i like 90s movies i don't think it reaches the height of some of the best 90s like political dramas like i don't think it can hold a candle to something like in the name of the father. Um, but I especially think like in this year, this is the first kind of film like this that we've gotten. So maybe I'm feeling more charitable to it because of that. But I do think it's worth watching. And like, I'm going to recommend that my parents watch it. Yeah, I as, as I said earlier in this review, I, I kind of too feel the same way about that, Nicole, where it's like comparatively speaking against the rest of the year, it's almost like, a breath of fresh air to see a movie like this, even if it's not in a normal year, what I would consider to be necessarily like top tier caliber in this year, it feels like it should be there. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Josh. Uh, I think actually sort of in the same boat as Nicole, I have, I think I feel like I have come across very negative about this movie, but I do like it overall. I think it is for the most part, very enjoyable and it's you know it's an entertaining watch even if it doesn't have a lot of nuance to it uh i will say though that there are a couple moments where the movie does almost completely lose me and another one that we didn't mention is when you do see the riot in the park happen and jerry rubin goes to save the girl who's getting assaulted um wasn't a fan of that moment actually um I, i'm not somebody that says that you should never like show any kind of like sexual assault in a movie i i'm not that person but i do think that you have to be smart in the way that you do it and i just felt the way that it was done in this movie in which this riot is happening and tear gas is flowing and these group of guys feel like this is the right moment to assault a protester on on the ground i i just didn't feel that was handled very tastefully and, and tactfully and uh it was a moment where it's like ooh, that seems to come from a perspective that i really don't think uh you know that's where the lack of nuance is really actually like damaging the movie and fortunately it's not a very big moment and it's over with pretty quickly but i did take note of it as like one of the low points of the movie but fortunately i don't think the movie is littered with them to really ruin the entire thing for me it wasn't helped by the assaulter saying things like make me a sandwich, which like, oh yeah. Boy. yeah, very on the nose, not subtle at all. And also uh, 
a trope that we've seen used in other movies uh, before and even television shows. I remember Game of Thrones, final season doing something like that. And John had to like stop like a fellow Stark soldier from like attacking a woman during this siege of the city. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent right now. I'm just saying that it happens a lot. No, but that's the thing. Like it is a it is a trope that gets used and it's a very lazy trope to just right. make somebody that you like some character that is not defined at all as like a background piece just to signify this person is evil but it is so lazy and i just don't feel like it, like if you're gonna do it you have to be very smart about it and not just use it as a lazy crutch and despite we knowing uh, us knowing that aaron Stark is a very good screenwriter it that comes across as extremely lazy especially in the setting where you know tear gas is going on over, all over the place i don't think that this is the appropriate time to say like, hey, like these group of guys are about to rape somebody. I, I just don't think that is an appropriate storytelling uh, trope to indulge in in that particular moment. It also does feel completely like one of those examples where uh, sexual assault is being used to make a statement about a male character that it's not yes. happening to mm-hmm. instead of the woman, uh, which that's that's one of my bigger issues with it is that... Yes. Uh, it's it's all about him and not about what's happening to her, yeah. and that I think also makes it feel very tropey and just just a little icky. Yeah, I would just say that the fact of just throwing in sexual assault for the sake of throwing it in as kind of like a cherry on top or a side is not cool. It's a very big deal and it's very sensitive, and there's people that it could trigger. So I just wouldn't throw it in for the sake of throwing it in, and especially when it benefits. a a guy and not the actual victim herself. Like we already know that Jerry Rubin is a good guy because he refused to break the egg that was thrown at him in the first scene of the movie. All right. We don't need to have another scene that illustrates that Jerry Rubin is a good guy. Like we get it already. I'm just saying. So I agree. I think it was, I think it was uh, pointless and definitely uh, unnecessary. All right, so my final thoughts on this movie. Uh, I only have a very, very few here. Uh, shout out to Kelvin Harrison Jr., who has probably the most thankless role maybe in the movie as Fred Hampton, which by comparisons is going to suffer when Daniel Kaluuya just wipes him away on the screen and Judas and the Black Messiah later, I'm sure. And we'll all look back on this and realize that that was a huge missed opportunity here with what Kelvin Harrison Jr. could have done with this character. Yeah, but but you know what? I ain't going to be mad when Kelvin Harrison Jr. shows up on screen. <laughs> okay, fair. <laughs> if, anything, if anything, it continues to show that Kelvin Harrison Jr. is pretty damn good at playing different characters and not playing himself. Like, you know, the, the, this performance and what he's doing here as Fred Hampton struck me as different than the work that we saw him do last year. So, Or in the high note. <laughs> oh God! I forgot that that came out. He You're has right. The range. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a couple of uh, lines here. Are you familiar with contempt of court? It's practically a religion for me, sir. Like I just don't understand Sasha Baron Cohen's line reading sometimes. <laughs> uh, the wearing of the judge outfit with the cop, cop outfits underneath. A good visual gag. I, you know, it's like these moments that, like, you know, they worked for me, like in a very simple way. So. I, I appreciated that. I, I think probably my favorite laugh out loud moment of the movie, though, was Allen Ginsberg with the war tra- chant in the crowd while they were marching. That was just like so You're killing me, Alan. So ridiculous to me. <laughs> He's just like everybody's walking, and then there's Allen Ginsberg. Um. <laughs> oh gosh, I loved it. And I really got nothing else to add other than to say that. 
regardless of all of the flaws of this movie, I was still very entertained by this. I was heading into this review ready to give it an 8 out of 10, but I've now seen it actually uh, three times, and I watched it for the third time before this review, and it was on that third time that I did start to notice a lot of the flaws that we mentioned here today, and it is becoming more clear to me that the movie is, you know, maybe not as good as it was on that first initial viewing. And part of that, and this is what I mean before when I talk about this movie had premiered a TIFF. This is a movie that would have benefited so greatly from festival hype. I mean, I, I can't even begin to tell you guys, like, I think that this movie would have performed at the same level as, say, like, Green Book would have, uh, or did, rather, at Toronto had it uh, debuted there. So... I'm actually going to drop my grade down to a seven, but it's a very strong seven. And I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I recommend it to people because it is safe. It is, uh, I, I think, inoffensive at times. But I, I definitely recognize that it doesn't go sometimes maybe as deep as some others would on some of its issues. It only scratches the surface. But I think Academy members are going to eat it up. Nicole? It's actually funny because I also started this podcast at an eight. And I was just sitting here like, yeah, I don't think I can give it an eight now. Um, so I'm also going to go down to a seven. I think it's a good film. I don't think it's a great film. Um, and I do have, like, honestly, more than a handful of issues with it. But at the same time, I do think it works decently well um, as the whole picture. And I will be recommending it to people. So a seven. Ryan? I am a six. Okay. Cody? Cody? I'm at a nice, comfy Chicago 7. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. You win. <laughs> Lauren? I'll stay at a 7. I also wanted to give it an 8, but I'm realizing once you go back and rewatch the film, it's going to definitely decrease instead of increase. So I feel like most people will be at an 8 first, and then if they ever go back to it, it will slowly diminish once you see all the faults and just the laziness sometimes of it. So I'm at a seven right now. Josh? Uh, I am also going to be at a seven. It's kind of a weak seven, to be honest. Um, it's sort of like is barely there. But overall, like I enjoyed the movie. I was entertained by the movie. It's not something that's great. But I can say, hey, you can be put down in front of it and get some kind of enjoyment out of it. So it's like it barely gets there, but it is something that I would recommend still. Great. Uh, I'm the one six and everyone else is a seven. Yeah, but <laughs> I'm again, the jerk. But again, yeah. Ryan, like for me, it, I'm it's, I'm also more like a 6.5, to be honest. I'm just sort of rounding up to a seven. Like I get where you're coming from. I'm, it's not like a, a very strong seven out of 10 for me. It just is like barely – Barely enough there for me to say, like, okay, it's fine to recommend. You don't have to explain yourself to him, Josh. He can be alone. No. And we did have a meeting beforehand where we said we were all going to give it a seven and make Ryan the only six. So, you yeah, know, exactly. To be fair. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to make him the, the Tom Hayden of the group. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We've already alluded to the Oscar potential for this movie during this review. Now, time to talk about it in detail here. Let's break this down, shall we? What you guys think of the original song that played over the credits? There was a song. Yeah. 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 I, I was already out by then, yeah. I couldn't even tell you the title. <laughs> I watched I it gone. 24 hours ago. So we'll be nominated is what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> so not, how was it? Here's the thing about it. Cody, you made a comment earlier about how this movie can just like stumble into nine nominations. Like, 
I don't think that that is so far-fetched necessarily. I could see this movie pulling in nominations that we are not even expecting just because there's a certain segment of the Academy that just absolutely goes nuts for this movie, as I alluded to before. I think that despite even its flaws, this is a movie that is made for a certain type of Academy voter. And I think like it's not out of the realm of possibility for costumes, production design, score, or original song to like somehow come into the conversation when... We're all probably looking at it and be looking at those particularly and being like, uh, it's not in our predicted five, but maybe it's in our 10. Sure. It's like I, I could see a world where it just brings them in. I mean, we've said this before on other podcasts. I do unfortunately think rather than the exciting, like independent, unknown films that we're hoping might get nominations out of nowhere, I do think it's going to be a little bit like last year where four movies got 10 nominations just down the boards. People were just lazy. So it's very possible for this type of movie. I will I say that seeing this film is getting a lot. I will say that seeing this film has made me switch some of my predictions for winners to Mank. Um, and maybe that's partially just that we haven't seen Mank yet, but I do kind of feel like this is going to get all the nominations, and I'm less positive about it getting wins. My trajectory with this is. I think it's going to be undervalued by the critics groups, which wouldn't shock me. I think it will show up for maybe something consistently in the critics groups, maybe like screenplay editing one of the supporting actors, you know, but picture and director mentions will be like, you know, here or there and, you know, pretty much maybe non-existent. And then all of a sudden we're going to get to the guilds and it's going to just keep popping up everywhere at the guilds with nominations. And then all of a sudden it all it takes is SAG Ensemble, WGA, PGA, boom. And it's like, well, all right, there goes that. I mean, it's getting all three of those without even trying. Like, this is a SAG Ensemble nominee right now. Yeah, I definitely agree. The question is, is it going to be the winner? And right now, I think it's easy to say that in October it could be because it just feels like such a safe default choice based on Academy trends that we've seen before in the past. But... There's still so much time left and so much can shift and so much can happen that I don't think it's uh, fair to call anything a lock right now at this time. No, absolutely not. And, you know, for a while I was running on this theory that I could have seen Aaron Sorkin as the director getting nominated at a bunch of stuff and him missing out at the end. He felt very classic, like gets nominated at the Globes, at BFCA, at DGA, at BAFTA even, but then misses the Oscar. But I, I don't know now with so many other contenders moving out of the schedule that might clear the path for him to land a nomination for best director as well. I mean, they love him at the Globes. They've nominated, I think, almost yeah. every screenplay he's ever written for screenplay and, you know, even given it the win a few times. Yeah. So I think the chance to give him a different category, they might just jump at. I mean, it reminds me of, and this is a movie we keep drawing comparisons to, but it's a much better movie, in my opinion, when Spielberg got like six nominations at the Globes for the Post. Mm-hmm. It seems very similar to that. Uh, I was also just going to mention that you know, for uh, one of the things that I was actually very impressed with this movie, it were two of the craft elements, which were the costumes and the makeup and hair design, which I found interesting because usually in period pieces where almost all your characters are men, they're not there's not really a great opportunity to have some 
kind of flamboyance in those departments. There usually are just like very boring suits and clean haircuts and that's all you really get. But I found that there was a lot of variety in those craft elements in this movie. And considering that I normally don't see that in these types of films where men make up most of the cast, I found that to be quite impressive. And those of all of the craft elements of this movie were actually the ones I was most impressed by and would really kind of champion some recognition there. Hmm. Interesting. I, I mean, I think that this is definitely, despite the fade out at the end, I think that this is definitely an editing contender. Yeah, for sure. It's got that showy cross cutting that, you know, they typically like. And it's also a supposed best picture front runner. So I, I think it's in for that. I think original screenplay. You know, we did see Aaron Sorkin not make it for Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs was also not a best picture film. And we already know that this is uh, one of Netflix's top priorities this year. So uh, I think that screenplay is definitely also going to be nominated. I think nominated for sure. It's just a matter of if it's going to be the winner like a lot of people are predicting now. Yeah, I was predicting it to win. I no longer am, but I, I feel like it's very safe for a nomination. Oh, 100%. And I want to just caution because, and listen, Green Book just ruined me, guys. I think that even if we're not predicting it for a win, all I'm going to say is don't be surprised if it does win. Right. Yeah. yeah. What do you guys think about Eddie Redmayne being the lead? Did, did anyone does anyone no. dispute that and think like Sasha Baron Cohen is the lead? I th- I think if anybody is the lead, it is Sasha Baron Cohen or even like Mark Rylance. But I don't think there's a lead in this movie. I think they're all supporting. no. I, I, I agree. I think they're all supporting as well. But if Netflix had to choose a lead, who would you suggest that they pick? I would say Sasha Baron Cohen. Myself. Yeah, I would say Sasha Baron Cohen. I actually do not understand really the argument that nope. Eddie Redmayne is the lead. Like, yes, he has a bit of an arc and he's really the only one that gets one. But that character is not really like front and center in any section of his story. So um, I, to be honest, I feel like the talk of Eddie Redmayne as the lead is more so like, Eddie Redmayne is the sacrificial lamb that we have to put as somebody as the lead so that we can clear the room for people. That exactly. feels to me like what that argument is more so being motivated by. I agree. And he's the only Oscar winner other than Mark Rylance of the group. So it makes the most sense, I think. No, I think Mark Rylance, I think honestly, it would be interesting to see if they pushed him for lead and if this film does go on to be um, a big player. Because I could. I could if if they pushed Mark Rylance's lead, I could hypothetically see it happening based on how the rest of Best Actor plays out. Because I was looking through my Best Actor predictions today, and I don't think it's a particularly strong year. Um, I, I could see it happening. Even like I, I think they will push Eddie Redmayne lead, and I do get it. Unlike some of uh, unlike unlike you guys, um, and I'm not saying I, I I could see him getting a Globe nomination or something. I, I could. Too. I think that if they pushed. Mark Rylance lead, he might honestly have a better shot than if they pushed Eddie Redmayne. But it does feel to me like Eddie is the one that they would push lead. Honestly, I kind of feel like maybe I would like the film more if they had centered it maybe a little bit more around Tom Hayden and given us more of a complete arc there. But they didn't. And I do think like it's very easy to say it's an ensemble piece. But we also know that they're probably going to push someone lead just to like like you said, make Eddie the sacrificial lamb and get him out of the supporting actor. Yeah, he'll get his Globe nomination, as you just said, and, you know, we can move on with it and focus on supporting actor, which is where 
personally, I think Ryan Lance is a slam dunk. I really do. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said this even before I saw the movie, like just sight unseen, that when you have very large ensembles like this, I tend to feel like where people's allegiances are are very uh, separated. And usually in situations like that, you just kind of default to the person that is the most well-known out of that group. And I think that Mark Rylance, not only just having a a character that you really kind of – empathize with he's also an oscar winner out of the cast i feel like his kind of trajectory lately of being a very reliable character actor and already having won an oscar for doing uh, for doing such work kind of makes it seem like if people can't decide on one person to rally around that the default is going to be mark rylance and i'm not upset about that at all no i i like his work in this actually quite a lot like even in his more subtle work, like when uh, Hoffman dis, uh, dismisses the testimony from Michael Keaton, like you could just see Rylance's heart just break on screen. And it, it's very, very great work from an actor who, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, has been given his proper due on film as he has been on stage, a.k.a. by uh, critics. You know, obviously, he's already been rewarded by the Academy, but I feel like there's a lot of critics who have yet to like fully appreciate Mark Rylance's work. And I think here he's doing I think he's doing the best that he can with the material that he's given and the screen time that he's given as well, that he can be such a standout. If we're all unified on Rylance, who was everyone's second pick if this movie were to get two slots in supporting actor because we've had conversations about this before supporting actor is also looking very weak this year so it's very likely that if the academy loves this movie they might bring in somebody else who is everyone's number two there uh yeah abdul Mantine. he would be i it for agree me. same i agree mm-hmm. yeah he's the kind of actor on the rise that i could see them rewarding in this category not necessarily with a win but like as i kind of like we see you um, but I also could see them defaulting again to previous nominee, Franklin Jella, who gets a really showy role. <laughs> and, you know, villains do well in supporting actors. So I could definitely see that. Sasha Baron Cohen's the one unknown factor for me because, quite honestly, I'm waiting to see how Borat 2 performs. I think that Borat could potentially either help him or it could completely sink him. And it also depends, too, on what we were talking about before. If Netflix decides to push both him and Eddie lead or just Eddie or Sasha and not Eddie. Uh, I mean, let's flip that for a minute here. Could anyone see a world where they push Sasha's lead and Eddie sticks in supporting? I can see it. Um, yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> and if that were to happen, do you think that Eddie would be alongside Rylance? No. I could see it. It's going to be a big, this is going to be a big contender. It's going to be a Best Picture nominee and have a lot of, you know, below the ballot. So I definitely can see a world where Eddie gets back in there. I think I think there's so much, like, um, division on the second nominee that I would not be surprised if this had a situation like The Departed did, where everybody was kind of split on DiCaprio, Nicholson, Wahlberg, and then all of a sudden, like, the only nomination that film got was Wahlberg, and we all looked at it and we were like, huh? And it makes me wonder if, you know, we're all thinking it's going to be Rylance the same way a lot of us thought it was going to be like Jack Nicholson, who was like a default in that supporting actor category that year. And then maybe it's someone else who gets in there because the votes are just so split amongst everyone. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I do feel like this movie is only going to get one supporting actor nomination. I 
I do kind of have this sense of it, I, even though right now I think I am predicting two, but it feels like a situation where everybody sort of rallies around Rylance as being like, yes, universally we all like him and he's solid and he's done this before to a point and he gets in, but then it's so split with everybody else in the cast that nobody gets enough votes to cross that threshold. I feel like the, this would be an issue during a normal season. The fact that, you know, it is 2020 and we have such a reduced number is going to play a big role in this. So I could definitely see, you know, more than one getting in because of just the lack of competition. Ryan, who do you have getting in? I just have Rylance right now, I think. Josh? Right now I have uh, Rylance and Yaha. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I have the same oh. as Josh. I'm sorry. Okay. Nicole? I have the same. Cody? Me too, with Langella right there. And Lauren? Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Yeah, I had Rylance and Sasha, and I'm gonna ch- I'm gonna change that depending on Borat because I I can't help but feel like Sasha is just having a, a bit of a spotlight moment right now on him as an actor, and if Borat is embraced by critics and beloved, I think I might keep him there, but we'll see. We'll see. All right. That'll do it here for our discussion of the Travel of Chicago 7 here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Ryan, tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. You can find me at RCS818 on Twitter. Nicole? You can find me at Nicole Ackman16 on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Cody Derricks? You can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Instagram at CodyMonster91. Lauren LaMagna? You guys can find me on the Twitter at Lauren LaMango. And Josh Parham. And I'm on Twitter at J.R. Parham. And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to our review of The Travel to Chicago 7 here on the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. You can subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Player FM, Acast, CastBox, also on Spotify. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening as always. We shall see you all next time. Something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.